Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Stefan Caponia, Booktopia's non-fiction category manager. I'm delighted to be speaking with one of Australia's most experienced Walkley award-winning journalists, news editor, director, and author of four previous books, Gary Lionel. Hi, Gary. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Pleasure we're, to be with you, Stefania. Today we're discussing your latest book, um, The Devil's Work. Now, um, I was actually really intrigued by the description of this book on the website when um, they said you were coming in, so I went and had a look. And honestly, I couldn't wait to get my hands on an advanced copy. So they described it as a gothic journey into the twisted mind of a serial killer set in the dying years of the 19th century when science and religion collided. And then it goes on to mention spiritualism, the afterlife and Jack the Ripper. So I knew I was going to get a really fascinating story, a really great read. Um, it was all that, but also ultimately I found it incredibly sad and very tragic. So for our listeners who haven't had an advanced copy, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah, look, I set out to do a book. I began researching it more than a year ago. Uh, a guy called Frederick Beeming and um, he was a former Lancashire seaman. Uh, he was a, a plumber and uh, he led quite an extraordinary life. And uh, he was living in the 1880s and early 1890s. He was a, a murderer, a swindler, a chronic bigamist who married at least three or four women that we know of. And there may have been a lot more because what you find is when you go back into the 19th century, there's always gaps whenever you start going through someone's personal life. Um, it was quite a, he had quite a, a savage way of ending the lives of two of his wives and unfortunately four of his children, but he was also linked to the Jack the Ripper murders. Now, in 1888, in the autumn um, in London, in the Whitechapel district, there are at least five women and possibly up to 11 who were butchered and dismembered by the so-called Jack the Ripper. It's the world's most enduring and famous cold case, I guess. It's, it's never been adequately solved. And I was quite wary about sort of disappearing down that rabbit hole because once you get into Jack the Ripper and Ripperology, it's called, um, there are thousands of people around the world who profess to be experts on the subject and they've all got their own theories. And over the last, what, 130, 140 years, I think there's been more than two or three dozen suspects that have uh, come up in time. Frederick Deeming was one of those originally early on. I'll just give you a quick snapshot of his history. He was born in the 1850s in England, uh, up near the Merseyside, near Liverpool. And uh, his father clearly didn't like him, uh, for basically from his birth. There were seven children in the family. Frederick was the fourth. The father used to beat him. The father clearly had some sort of mental illness as well. Um, he believed the house they were living in was haunted and um, he could hear voices in his head and several times he tried to do away with himself. He used to beat Fred. After Fred's mother died, Frederick took off and he would disappear for weeks and then months and then years at a time. He took up work as a seaman, working on some of the merchant ships going across the Atlantic. Uh, he'd come home and the family, particularly the brothers, used to become increasingly concerned about him because they thought he was growing uh, more and more eccentric with each visit. You know, they couldn't understand what he was talking about. He would don the finest clothes and wear expensive jewellery and parade up and down the street. He claimed to have seen the ghost of his mother floating outside his bedroom window. 
This went on for some time. He still managed to um, uh, marry a woman in 1881 and together, Marie, and together they set out to Australia where he thought he could get work as a plumber and a gas fitter, which he did. But he was never far away from trouble. He um, ended up in prison for six weeks for stealing um, uh, gas fittings from a shop. Uh, and then later in the 80s, he was declared bankrupt and he was sentenced to two weeks in prison for contempt of court for defrauding a, a lot of his clients. He was a shocking womanizer. He had an obsession bordering on monomania, really. Um, and he carried on several affairs with barmaids while he was in Sydney. Uh, he had three or four children with Marie. Um, after his last imprisonment, they set off under assumed, assumed names and went to South Africa, where he seemed to have carried out quite a few scams that netted him tens of thousands of pounds. So essentially a very big fortune back in the 1880s. Uh, they got back to England and by his side was a cub lion that Frederick Deming claimed to have uh, rescued from a cave where he killed its, its parents in a ferocious battle. He was always full of these ridiculously outrageous stories. Um, and not long after rejoining his family uh, over in the, the Merseyside, he disappeared again. He turns up in Hull, uh, in the Yorkshire town of Hull, and he marries a 21-year-old girl. He's still married to Marie, of course, but now he marries a young girl called Nellie Matheson. And he courts her, they go on a honeymoon, and then he vanishes, and no one knows where it is, whereas, whereas it turns out he's been stealing from a local jewellery store. And he jumps on his ship and heads off to um, Montevideo in Uruguay, where he thinks he can basically disappear again. And he's captured and taken back and spends nine months in Hull Prison. No sooner is he released from Hull Prison than he turns up in the very small um, Merseyside village of Rainhill, where he begins to court another young 21-year-old girl, um, convinces her family that he's quite a rich man, uh, well-to-do, uh, works with the military. Um, his wife turns up with their children and they stay in this rented villa in Rainhill and then they vanish and no one ever knows what happened to them. Frederick tells everyone it's just his sister and her kids coming to visit them. Anyway, a few weeks later, he marries um, uh, Emily Mather and takes her on a honeymoon out to Australia where they settle into a house in Melbourne. Three months later, um, over Christmas, on, probably on the morning of Christmas 1891, he murders Emily. And three months later, he, her body is discovered uh, decomposing beneath the fireplace of that home. A nationwide manha manhunt begins. It turns out that uh, a few weeks after killing her, Frederick met another young woman on a ship to Sydney, proposed marriage, and agreed to meet her over in Western Australia. Now, it's just a such a complicated story because he's everywhere and people say well how did this guy manage without much money to travel around the world all the time well in the 19th century he didn't need passports he didn't have identification papers for most countries so it was relatively easy to cross the borders they were very porous anyway he he went to the western australian mining town of southern cross it was a dusty old hole basically where prospectors sort of ventured out into the western australian desert looking for uh, their fortune and he was arrested there and brought back to Melbourne, charged with the uh, murder of his wife, Emily. Now, while that journey back to Melbourne was taking place, police uncovered the bodies of his first wife and four children. And they'd been strangled and buried beneath a concrete slab in that rented home in Rainhill. 
And suddenly, Frederick Deeming became the most infamous character in the world, the most despised man in the Western world by a long way. People began assuming he could have been Jack the Ripper as well. Um, and then what followed is an extraordinary series of events where he's taken to trial. He's defended by a future Prime Minister of Australia, Alfred Deakin, who became our second PM and was the architect of Australia's constitution. Uh, Deakin was a spiritualist and very heavily involved in the spiritualist movement at the time. And this was huge around the world. Uh, you had a clash or a collision taking place in that Victorian era between science and religion. And many people had turned away from the Old Testament and traditional religion and believed that there was an afterlife where you could communicate with these spirits. And Frederick, from my research, has suddenly found himself being defended by a future PM who believes he can speak to the dead. Uh, his lawyer, another lawyer, is also a spiritualist. Uh, and the journalist who's covering all of this for the New York Times, a man called uh, Sidney Dickinson, is also a committed spiritualist whose wife conducts many seances in uh, Melbourne. Little wonder then that as part of his defence, Frederick says that he had the urge to kill because he was woken by the ghost of his dead mother at two o'clock every morning. who used to whisper in his ear, telling him that all of the women in his life were just not up to it. They were no match for her and he should do away with them. And in the end, he had to relent. So you've got this extraordinary tale, not only of a, a serial killer who's been on the loose for more than three decades around the world, but it was front page treatment, New York Times, the Times in London, uh, the newspapers in Australia obsessed over it. And uh, three weeks after the trial, he was found guilty. He was hanged in um, Melbourne jail. More than 10,000 people gathered in the streets outside the jail to celebrate. Um, as I said, he was the most despised figure. Uh, there's been a lot of theories that he may have been linked to the Jack the Ripper killings. Um, a lot of, it's all circumstantial, and that always takes place with the Jack the Ripper case. There's no, there's no hardcore DNA evidence. There's no CSI detectives going in there with their special you know, microscopes and, and computers to analyze the, the remains. Um, and I, I think there's a very strong argument um, that Deeming may have had a role in at least uh, one or two of those murders in Whitechapel, um, those, at least those five prime women who were, who were murdered there during the autumn of uh, 1888. Yeah, so a really full-on story and a lot of things to unpack. <laughs> there is a lot. It took There's me a long a time. It took me, it took me a long time just to get my head around what I was dealing with, because I thought I was just doing the story of this eccentric plumber who came to Australia, murdered his wife, had already murdered his first wife and four kids, and there the story would kind of end. Um, but as it transpired, once I started looking into the spiritualism movement, I found myself, you know, descending into this rabbit warren of, you know, this gothic world where you know, you've got people believing that there are spirits emerging from the walls, uh, that they can communicate with the dead. Some of these mediums could actually um, use writing as a way of communicating with the spirits. And people really believe this. You know, it's easy for us to laugh about it in, in, in the year 2021. But back in the 1880s and 1890s, this was enormous. There were tens of millions of people around the world who firmly believed in an afterlife. And there are a lot of charlatans, a lot of uh, spiritualist mediums, 
who were out there um, hoodwinking everyone. They used fake lens. You know, they used mirrors during seances to reflect light off the walls. And I think people were quite open. They wanted to believe. And, you know, into, the, in, into this world, the, the very curious and bizarre figure of Frederick Deeming, and I suddenly found myself with this quite remarkable tale. Um, and, it's, and it is a gothic tale. And I decided I'd write it like that. I'd try and sort of give people a sense of what it was like to live in the 1880s and 1890s, and also the pandemonium that ensued after his arrest when he became the most reviled figure on the planet. Yeah, so, um, yeah, about the spiritualism, what fascinated me, so I did a little bit of research into it myself, and um, it used to be very fashionable for people um, to have seances, um, and the amount of um, well-known historical people or figures who used to partake in seances, can you mention a few that, that you know of in your research. Yeah, well, for instance, uh, Queen Victoria herself, who you know, ruled for 70 odd years uh, across the greatest empire history had ever seen. We're talking about the 1880s and 1890s here. Um, Britain um, is by far, London by far is the largest city the world has ever known. There are more than 5 million people crammed into its precincts. Um, they're burning, 10,000 um, uh, kilos, I think it was, or pounds of coal every day. There are a thousand tons of horse dung that are dropped on the streets of London every day as well. Just to give you a sense of, of what it's like, Queen Victoria has lost her husband, um, Albert, um, and a young uh, medium contacts her and says, your husband wants to say hello, and he uses her pet nickname that only she and her husband had shared. So, Immediately, Queen Victoria is a confirmed spiritualist. She believes in it. You've got princes and kings and queens right throughout Europe who are also um, uh, getting involved in spiritualism. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the, uh, the author of Sherlock Holmes, creator of Sherlock Holmes and many other characters, he is a big figure in the spiritualism movement. You've got uh, people like Douglas um, Hume, who was a spiritualist who could levitate um, using the tricks that, of magicians from the 21st century. But thousands of people would gather to watch him just sort of levitate an inch off the floor, not knowing all of the tricks where you turn your back to an audience and you can not show them the front half of your foot and it can appear as though you're sort of lifting yourself off, off the ground. Um, as I said, there were dozens of others and it went right across every continent in every major city in the world spiritualism took hold because it offered people uh, uh, hope. You know, you, you could actually know that once you'd passed on, there either wasn't the, the light of heaven or the darkness and the heat of hell, but there was somewhere in between where you, your life went on and you could still find a way to communicate with the family that you'd left behind. And I think this reassured so many people and it was such an easy thing to get your head around and to warm to. And and don't forget the 1880s and 1890s, you've got the second industrial revolution going on, which is a, um, this really transforms the world. Thomas Edison has just invented the long lasting light bulb, which lights up the globe. You know, you've got Karl Marx tinkering away in Germany with a two stroke engine that's going to become the first motor car. 
Alexander Graham Bell has only 10 years earlier invented the very first telephone. Uh, the telegraph now transforms the way people receive their news. Instead of waiting months for ships to carry letters, messages, uh, within hours, they know exactly what's happening in Australia and likewise for Australia, they know what's happening in London. So it's quite an extraordinary time and a, quite an, a, 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 a moment in time when all of these things are colliding together, religion, science, you know, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, uh, confuses a lot of people too. So you've got all of these things sort of all hitting at the same time and then along comes this lad from Lancashire who has extraordinary stories to tell, boasts about, you know, travelling throughout Africa, uh, fighting in various wars on several continents, most of which are just you know, figments of his imagination. But you can get away with so much because there's no Google there where you can check someone's background. You know, and, and like I said, on, on a Saturday night in Sydney and in Melbourne, which were absolute hotbeds of spiritualism back then, everyone didn't sit around watching Netflix or trying <laughs> to figure out what they were going to do that night. They all sat around the table and they put their hands down and they held hands and they could feel, or they claimed to have felt, the table move. This was called table tipping. Mm. And you know, scientists later explained it was just a, a collection of people who so fervently believed uh, in what they were doing that they didn't even know that they were actually tipping the table themselves. So you've got this uh, incredible period in Australian history and it's one of those times I think that we tend to sort of overlook when we go back and Alfred Deacon is just one of those classic characters you know he was a, a budding politician in Victoria in the colony there his family had lost their fortune in the property collapse of 1891 um, because Melbourne's property prices had gone I mean it's a little bit like Sydney and Melbourne these days actually it's a repeat history always repeats itself um, and so he decided they lost their fortune. So they, he decided to go back to the bar and practice as a barrister. And that's where he encountered Frederick Deeming. Yeah, so you're, you're speaking of um, things repeating themselves. And that was one of the things that I noticed a lot in the, in the book. Um, how as much as things have changed, things are still the same. So for me, um, a big part of it was the media circus around the trial. Um, and when I was reading it, it just reminded me of the Ted Bundy trials. Um, and the, all the women, as much as that he was um, very hated, women would turn up to the courthouse to watch. There was more women in, in the courthouse, um, in the gallery, and no one could understand what the appeal was. So can you talk a little bit about, about that, what the court, case was like? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit like, um, you know, you, you hear these stories all the time, don't you, about um, mm. prisoners on death row in America and women always writing to them and sometimes marrying them without ever having met them. It's a curious phenomenon and they noticed this after Deeming's arrest when he was taken to Melbourne and there was an inquest hearing first into the death of his wife and then the four-day trial that happened. They actually had ticket allotments because there were so many people, tens of thousands of people wanted to attend both the inquest and the, and the trial. And when the trial began, the journalists were staggered, as were the court officials, at how many women were filling up the gallery. And quite a few of them were clearly besotted 
redeeming. There was something about him that, despite the fact that he was a murderer um, and a bigamist and a swindler and a cheat, um, they found there was some sort of attraction there. And back in, we're talking about the Victorian era where women were regarded as you know, sensitive, delicate creatures who needed to be kept away from you know, the, the brutal details of criminal cases and they were never welcome into the court precincts. But uh, the newspapers constantly expressed you know, a disgust at their presence. And they sort of, you don't have to read it too far between the lines to know that they were effectively saying that these women were, you know, cheap. Uh, they, they didn't use the word whores because you would never use that word, but you kind of got the idea that they regarded them as sort of like the lower part of society and, you know, they didn't deserve to be there. Um, the media circus itself was extraordinary, even by uh, the standards of the time um, you had what were called penny dreadfuls which were small little publications that were sold for a, a penny each on the streets that started in london and then took off around the world and during the deeming trial and just after it there were dozens of these that were printed and they were kind of like snapshots of the trial and a lot of stuff that was invented as well because there was so much pressure on the media to come up with an exclusive story and the argus newspaper in melbourne which um you know, is now defunct, long defunct. Um, they broke a lot of the ground on the story. They were the ones who had uh, found a clue that uh, tipped off the um, British police to help find the bodies of Deeming's first wife and four children. So they were constantly trying to get into the interview Deeming. And um, along comes Sidney Dickinson, our reporter from the New York Times. He's only just arrived in Australia a couple of years earlier. He's uh, not really a, a full-time journalist, but he, he writes for the New York Times and a few other publications. He's, his great love in life is art. And he's travelled the world studying all of the great masters of art. And he, he carries with him a stereo opticon, which is a, a magic lantern. It's kind of like the precursor to motion pictures. It has two lenses. He gives lectures in large crowded halls. displays a very colourful image on the wall. And then that dissolves and shows a second image. And this was the height of technology. This was like an iPad back then. <laughs> and um, he was quite a famous you know, professor. And so he became involved in the deeming case. And as I said, Dickinson's wife was heavily into the spiritualist movement as well. And out of all of the journalists who were trying to uh, interview deeming, um, Dickinson managed to secure the only interview on the proviso that he didn't publish it until long after the trial had finished. And he ended up not even talking about it or writing about it until about 25 years later when he wrote his, uh, his memoir. And um, so you've got all that. He goes in and sees, uh, takes his wife and they go into the old Melbourne jail, which is just a hellhole of depravity and twisted people who live there, um, all proclaiming their innocence. And he meets with Deeming and his wife carries in a, uh, basically a bucket of um, plaster of Paris and they asked him if they could take a, an imprint of his arm and his hand so that they can read the lines in his hand because his wife is also a, a, into palmistry. <laughs> one of those 19th century obsessions where you can actually tell someone's character and their future and their past by reading those lines on their hand. I mean, there are still people around here at local circuses and, you know... Um, My mum used to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, and there are and people who just who yeah. genuinely believe in it. And 
I was careful not to take the mickey out of them all in the book because I don't think you can look at the 19th century yeah. through the lens of the 21st century. Although it's become really popular again, I think during what you were saying before about giving hope to people, there's been a bit of a, an upsurge in astrology and all of these kind of alternative um, mind, body, spirit type things yep. since COVID. And I think it's a little bit of, of that. It's, it gives people hope when they're, they're worried or there's a lot of fear in what's happening politically or... Without, you know, a, without a doubt. I just have to look at my Instagram feed or my TikTok yeah. feed and, uh, <laughs> and and there they all are drinking their special you know, uh, shot, shot glasses full of uh, lemongrass and ginger and telling you how to get healthy and you know, there's a of the past continue to surround us and um, you know I've, I've found it in my other books you know I did a book on William Buckley the convict who escaped and lived with the Wadarung Aboriginal people for 30 years and and even Captain Moonlight the gay bush ranger and there are so many things that you find out about that those eras that you know in in many ways are being repeated now so, you know, through different mediums and through yes technology but that I think it's a it's a it lies at the heart of being human, that yeah. wanting to, to know that there is something else, and yeah. that you know our spirits can sort of outlast us. And um, to me, I, I mean, I just I I love doing this book because of that. Had it just been a normal true crime book, I mm -hmm. think it would have been a little bit pedestrian. Yeah. But the very fact that these people believed in it and. I say a lot of this material has been around for a century or more. People have written about deeming in the past and, and certainly about uh, Jack the Ripper, but no one's ever taken a look at that spiritual aside. And I think because they tend to look at it through our modern lens and they go, oh, that can't be real, it's ridiculous. I'm not going to pay that any attention. Yeah. So my first impression when I started reading the book and him talking about his being able to see his dead mother and was that he was insane. So in our, with our modern lens, we just go, okay, he was schizophrenic. Yeah. Um, and then there's all these, as you start to read the book, there's more and more references on how he grew up in a family that had a cycle of abuse. Um, his father was obviously... Um, had mental health issues. His mother did. They're both in and out of asylums. He himself, um, there's rumours that he'd been in an asylum during one of the periods where he disappeared. His, um, I think it was his sister who also had issues. Then later on during the court case, there were scientific experts that came in and, and tried to prove that he was insane. His family gave affidavits that he he was insane, and yet he wasn't considered insane, which no, from our modern times, and I couldn't quite reconcile whether it was just the um, the period, that time where they had a different attitude to what was um, considered a mental health issue, or was it really that he was such a liar that he was... Um, he was spinning, spinning it too. I think I think it's a blend of so many issues. There, there's certainly a, there was a lot of ignorance about mental health issues in the 1890s, um, as there was in the 1950s and as the 1990s. Are today. <laughs> today, yeah. So, you know, again, it goes with history. But 
Um, also, I think that people didn't even appreciate that there was a, there's a character in the book called uh, Cesar, Cesar Lombroso, who is a, an Italian professor who had a profound impact on policing and legal work in the 1890s, right through until the first half of the 20th century. He believed that there was such a thing as an instinctive criminal. And he would you know, probe the size of the head and look at the various bumps and dents on it and determine and say, he would say that people with large ears and long noses were born criminals. And you know, that means you're an instinctive criminal, that you had no real choice in it. And this really appealed to a lot of people, particularly the class-based system that existed mm. in the UK and elsewhere, and in Australia for that matter at the time. And people really believed this. They thought it was cutting-edge science. And this persisted right up until about 1930, 1940. So in many ways, they took a look at Frederick Deeming. He, one, of the, one of the curious things about Deeming is when you look at photographs of him with his big sweeping ginger moustache, and he's a short guy with broad shoulders, bit of a squat head. He's certainly not the best looking guy around. You wouldn't see him on Instagram, you know, modeling jeans or something or a, or a tight fitting t-shirt. Um, and yet he seemed to, a lot of women seemed to find him very attractive. And people are going, well, why? Well, he persuaded them that he was a man of wealth. And back in the 1880s and 1890s, for many young women, the only way out of the family home was to marry someone of substance because it meant that you could step up in society, but it also meant that your future was secured, that you had someone who could look after you. And, uh, you know, very much, I guess, like uh, the Western world in the 1950s, there were that white picket fence sort of view of the yeah. world. And I, I think that was one of the lures of, of deeming that, you know, he, he spun a very good story. When he was talking to women, he was abusive, um, he would laugh with them, he would, um, shower them with gifts. You know, he always had expensive jewellery that he had usually stolen from someone, which he'd pass on. Uh, one of the extraordinary stories is after he murdered his second wife in Melbourne, weeks later, he's on a ship to Sydney and he meets, uh, I think it's called monomania, where you have this absolute obsession with one thing and his obsession was getting married. Yeah. Uh, and he was trying to replace his mother all the time. And he met young Kate Rounsfeld, who was 19 years old, quite pretty. Uh, and he proposed to her on this, on this two-day ship journey to Sydney, ended up proposing to her as they sailed into Sydney Harbour. And it was, uh, she said, no, I hardly know you. But after a few days of getting to know him and he visited her sister and convinced them that he was quite wealthy, she said she had finally agreed to marry him. And I think she was desperate to get out of the family home they lived in. Or did Athens. he just wear her down? <laughs> yeah, I think he, he was just persistent. You know, there's probably a lesson in that for a, a lot of yeah, guys. A lot of girls. But he, he just persisted and he probably annoyed them so much that they just ended up saying yes. Yeah, so does that uh, make him crazy or does that just make him a good storyteller? I think that's uh, part of I think it. a bit of both. He was, yeah. he, was definitely, he was definitely crazy. There's no doubt about that. He was just... Anyone who murders their wives, yes, particularly right. their children, in the manner that he did, has to be a sociopath. Yeah. Um, if not bordering on the psychopath. Uh, but he, like a lot of them, he could actually, you know, hold a conversation. Um, and yet he was also desperate to be seen above his station. He was a working class lad from Lancashire. His brothers all worked in the Laird Brothers shipyard in the Merseyside, this filthy 
place. They're all, um, uh, you know, stone masons, or they were firing up a furnace. They're all working in that white spits, black spits. He didn't want to end up in that life. He wanted something better. So that's why he always posed as a gentleman of means as well and wore expensive jewellery because he saw the middle and upper class and that was how they dressed. That was how they showed off their wealth and displayed it. So he wanted to be like them. So he would always assume the, the alias of someone who was very well-to-do. And he gave himself away constantly, though, because he had a habit of dropping his H's and slipping back into that working-class Lancashire accent. Which always gave him away. You know. A little like um, people watching uh, their, their feeds, like you were saying, and wanting to aspire to be like that. So, yes, things yep. change, but they stay the same. But we've gone past our half-hour mark. Oh, have you? That was quick. I, I know. I've got so, much, so many more questions I'd love to ask you, but it's come to an end. I'm sorry. Um, so, look, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Um, I hope everyone has enjoyed listening to us and as, as riveted as I am with the story. Um, it's a great read. If you want to go and grab your copy of Deborah's work at your local bookstores um, or online at Booktopia. Um, thank you again for listening and never stop reading. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au